less stress, more time, more money. Welcome to the Cashflow Contractor interview. What's up, Cashflow Contractors? Khalil here. We've got another great episode. We're doing another interview this week with Ali Azahat. He is from Jacksonville, Florida, currently living in Tennessee, but working as the Chief Revenue Officer of Hover. Hover is the sponsor of this week's episode. We had them sponsor the James Freeman episode as well, but really incredible software that can transform your contracting business in terms of measurements, quotes, customer interactions. Everything is incredible that they do and definitely want to give a great shout out to them. Go and check them out at hover.to and you can learn more about their product and get started with using their systems for your business. Uh, Ali is an incredible person. He started multiple businesses, had ups and downs and had so much uh, of a transformation in his life through business. And it's really cool to hear his experiences, learn from his, his life story and to see all the great things that he's doing with Hover now. Uh, hope you enjoyed the episode and thank you for listening. Ali, I usually have a co-host with me. His name is Martin and we, we uh, typically banter for a little bit and it's, uh, it's always weird bantering with a guest you don't really know, but uh, <laughs> we'll go ahead and try it. What are uh, the differences between Jacksonville and Franklin or Nashville where you are now? Uh, that's an interesting question. Uh, so the differences between the two cities, they're actually quite similar. Uh, okay. Both actually, they have a lot of Southern hospitality and charm, you know, mm-hmm. and I had 30 years in Jacksonville and then and then 11 years in California and now back in the South again. It just, it, it feels like uh, Jacksonville, it feels like home. Really, feels like home. yeah, really kind-hearted people, gracious people, um, neighborly. It's, it's yeah. yeah, it's really uh been an incredible uh, place to come back to. That's great, man. Uh, I love that area of the country. So pretty in the in the mountains. I guess that's the difference: the mountains versus the uh, the beach. But um, yeah, I mean, I appreciate you being on. Not the typical guest that we have. We talk to a lot of contractors, uh, but I mean, you're kind of breaking some stereotypes. I'm not sure there's many uh, CROs that have been in construction themselves in, in a way and owned multiple businesses and sold. But maybe, maybe there are. So, yeah, I want to, you know, you're the CRO of Hover, Chief Revenue Officer, but I want to go back into your story a little bit uh, because I think a lot of people, a lot of listeners will find it interesting. Uh, You came out of college and is that, did you work anywhere or did you just go right into starting your first business? Well, I'd always, I'd I'd worked since I was about 10, 11 years old. Like, you know, when when we came over from Afghanistan because of the war with Russia, you know, it, it, we didn't we didn't have a lot of means, and so mm-hmm. I I I grew up trying to do everything I could to not to put pressure on my family uh, mm-hmm. for the things that I wanted to do for myself, and so I was hustling neighbors to mow their lawns and and <laughs> and deliver newspapers and newsletters and babysit people's kids and uh, really anything I could do to try to take some pressure off of my parents' backs, and I think that really kind of sparked my entrepreneurial spirit. And when I was yeah. in college, when I was in college, um, I actually, I, I, I never finished college. I dropped out at the beginning of my senior year to start okay. my, my first formal company, which was a, which was a technology business helping, uh, students find scholarship money to go to school on, on the, Excellent. on the internet. Yeah. That's cool. Did you, I'm, I'm assuming if that's the case, you had some experience, you, you got some scholarship money yourself. 
it's it's kind of a funny story. I uh, what well, wasn't funny at the time, but I I I'd saved up you know I don't know three or four thousand bucks when I was in tenth grade that I was really proud of, and I came across a service that said that you know they would guarantee that you would get scholarships if you you know paid for their service, which which it turned out to be a scam that the uh, the FTC got oh, involved man. in, and yeah, and so I I lost a lot I lost a lot of grocery bag and lawnmower money. Um, yeah. But 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 fortunately, I, I had the type of upbringing where I'm, just, I'm not a quitter, you know. So it really, just fired mm-hmm. me up and motivated me. And I, I spent my um, balance of my sophomore uh, and junior senior year. I, I made looking for scholarships like a job for myself. Mm-hmm. And I ended up um, after being motivated as much as I was, uh, transitioning in, into college with about sixty thousand dollars in scholarship money, and I wow. won. I won nine separate scholarships and uh, they were all on the local or state level. So that, that was the business that I started was finding all of the local and state level scholarships throughout the country and making those accessible to students. Because trying to compete for the Pepsi scholarship or Coca-Cola or Tylenol, right. it, so tens of thousands of people apply to those. But on the local level, you would come across some scholarships that people just didn't even know about and they would, they would never mm. even apply, right? Yeah. And, uh, so you're like one of two applicants, maybe. <laughs> yeah, I was number one of the number twos. Yeah, <laughs> I still, I still <laughs> there won. You go. That's great. That's great. So, I mean, did, were you doing some of that while you were in college before you dropped out, like helping people with scholarships, and you realized it was a business opportunity? That's such funny that you asked that question. That's exactly how it happened. Was okay. Friends of mine in college that didn't win money, any scholarships coming out of high school. I helped them with a lot of the kind of tips and tricks that I learned from just kind of becoming and more of an expert on um, that, that the entire kind of process of, of procuring scholarships and applying for them and and how to set yourself apart and uh, and stand out in interviews. And they started to win scholarships while they were in college. And somebody one day said, man, you should make a business out of this thing. <laughs> and I, I didn't really take it seriously because I was just like I don't want to like make a book or CDs because you got to remember this is 1996 when I'm okay you know wow to, to date myself yeah uh a I, look, I, look, now. I look a lot younger and more handsome than uh <laughs> th- than I actually am but uh the and I remember watching the IBM internet commercial where the two women uh are trying to sell sunglasses in their business they couldn't figure out how to do it and they did it on this thing called the internet and then at the end of the commercial it shows them as like on a yacht and they're really rich and i was like i said oh that's how i'm going to do it i'm going to build a database service but on the internet and so that was my first business was a consumer-based internet company that helps students find scholarship money to go to school that's amazing i think you know there's so many contractors out there now that are exactly in the same situation where they were helping a buddy maybe with the project or um, you know, help doing something for their own house. And that's how they started their business was scratching their own itch and then doing it for somebody else and realizing they could make some money off of it. But there's a real challenge to the evolution of a business owner there because yeah, you start creating this business, but it's really a high risk job at that point of you've dropped out of college. Now you're relying on this new business as your source of income. What was it like scaling that business? How long were you in it? And what were the steps of, of growing it? So when, when I started that business, it was like right at the prime kind of peak of the web 1.0. And okay. so I was able to raise a couple million dollars for the company. And uh, awesome. I, think, I think at the largest point, we had maybe 60 or 70 employees. Uh, but 
I had no idea what I was doing. <laughs> I, I, I just, I, I, it was, it was, it was a lot of instinct and and getting yeah. a lot of help, a lot of help from um, smarter people than me. So mm. the 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 mentorship that I was able to surround myself with was what ultimately really helped uh, give us the opportunity to be able to successfully sell that to a public company after a few years, and um, and so that it was it was a constant. Bat, not battles, not the right word. It was it was like a constant evolution of learning, you know. Just just yeah. just I was fighting to learn as much information as I could as quickly as I could. Yeah, that and and that's that's the only way to succeed. Honestly, is there's going to be so much uncertainty and change that you just have to embrace it and be the quickest learner and always be curious. Um, so how so you're in that for a few years and you exit. Uh, what, what, how did you get into your next venture? Well, this is where it gets a little bit interesting. So <laughs> the company that bought my business, they bought, I don't know, seven or eight other startups. And uh, it was a company called Student Advantage. For people who remember, they did like college discount cards uh, all yeah. over the country. They, they, went, they went public and um, was successful in that uh, early 2000s timeframe. But when I left, I left the business after they acquired uh, my first company and I, I started another business in the student finance space that it wasn't directly competitive, but it was the same industry. Uh, mm -hmm. they, they weren't just going to let one of their founders go and start a business after they acquired them. Otherwise, they were nervous about a lot of the other founders that um, of the businesses they'd acquired, just that, you know, they could just leave and go start up another company that, that's similar. So I actually mm -hmm. got sued for non-compete infringement, not, not formally sued. The threat of a lawsuit was, was being applied. Okay. But when that happened, the next business that I wanted to start that had to do with uh, student finance and scholarships was, um, basically put on hold because the investment that we were going to receive wasn't going to come through while there was a potential pending lawsuit for me because I was a critical participant in the new venture. Yeah. And so we were just on pause really for a lot of stuff. And I had to figure out how I was going to make money in the meantime. Mm -hmm. And so I ended up coming up with an idea where I could, I needed to do something on the weekend so I could still work on the second business during the week. And I, I was happy to get out of an office and use my hand. So I was like, what is it that I could do where I could get like paid as a function of risk instead of time? And it just happened to be that my parents needed their gutters cleaned. And I ended up, okay. con I ended up contacting uh, the few people locally that even promoted that they, they cleaned or serviced gutters. And all of them were voicemails that said that they would call back in like eight weeks. And so I was like, oh, wow, there's an opportunity here. And yeah. so I started, a, I started a gutter cleaning company and, <laughs> and I, I used to make like a couple thousand bucks on the weekend. Yeah. Which is great. And uh, it was enough to, to live off of and still be comfortable while I was starting a second business. And I, I did that for probably three or four months before I ended up settling the non-compete suit. And we s stopped advertising in the newspaper that we were my the friend and I that we were doing uh, this gutter cleaning, but people who still had our phone number, they kept calling that phone line to tell us to come back. And <laughs> so we were like, wow, we should make a business out of this. And that's how it started. It started as a gutter cleaning company that got into repair, got into installation, that got into soffit and fascia, that got into vinyl siding. <laughs> and we're about to get into screen rooms and roofing before I ended up selling the company. Um, 
after after running it for about five years. Man, so were you still doing the second venture? Uh, yeah, I had while you were doing the gutter company. Yeah, I had both businesses at the same time. Man, how did you how did you manage your time at that point? You know, at that time, it was it was really tough, but I had incredibly loyal um, and committed and, and really talented uh, employees and, and business partners in both businesses, uh, mm-hmm. the same business partner for both businesses. So we were able to kind of divide and conquer when we needed and, and, and resource the two. But in hindsight, if I had it to do all over again, I, it, it's really hard to launch two businesses at the same time. It's different if you have one that's scaling and it's, it's out of yeah. its growth phase. But to do both at the same time, I probably to be honest, I probably hurt the growth of each by sure. trying to have both at the same time. But That's such a good lesson for people to hear because I, I see so many contractors that are making money and then on the side they're like, oh, well, I'm going to start doing real estate. Yeah. And yes. the reality is, yeah, you can do that, but you're hurting the growth of your company because it's not just about the money that you have or the capital, but there's capacity that you have as an individual. And when you're divided like that, it's actually a huge challenge. So really interesting that you were able to do it. What were you able to grow you know, that company for the, the gutters and uh, eventually becoming basically a contractor more than just cleaning? How, what were you able to grow it to? How many employees did you have? What were you guys doing in revenue? Yeah, so we had, um, at its peak, we had uh, four trucks that were running at the same time on the gutter and, and vinyl siding and soft and efficient installation side. And... Uh, we subbed out a lot of the vinyl siding software fissures. That wasn't our own employees. Sure, you're uh, doing more of a GC. Yeah, yeah. And then on um, gutter cleaning, we had a couple of trucks. So there was probably 25 people that were employees, and we did a few million in revenue. Uh, and, uh, and, and we're about to step up to the next level of scale, uh, but ended up seeing an opportunity to be able to sell the business. And so we were... Mm-hmm. We, we, we took that opportunity uh, and we're really fortunate because we sold it at the end of 06 and then the real estate bubble started to burst and, yeah. and the market changed. So it was really fortunate time we sold that business and the second um, technology company in, in 06. Oh, wow. So you sold the technology company too. How did that one scale? Yeah, so that one, because of what I learned from the first business in, uh, in terms of uh, it's not about... Uh, you know, raising a ton of money and, and, and hiring a ton of employees. It, we wanted to run it a little bit more like a traditional company, like we were running the, the construction company. And so we, we, we didn't raise anywhere near as much money for that business. And uh, we, we kept it super lean. There was probably 10, 12 employees in the business. And uh, we sold it. Uh, we did a little over million in revenue after a few years and I, we sold it for just under four million dollars wow that's such a cool insight how did you come to that realization after running the first company what were some of the lessons you learned from that that made you run the second one differently yeah it was uh i, I realized that a lot of the decisions that i was making was driven more by ego than it was by intellect and i I've, i found myself becoming um what one of my um that uh, mentors and, and friends said it's like you don't ever want to be an empire builder you just mm-hmm. you're building for the sake of building size if that's not what's appropriate for what your um goals and objectives are for the business yeah. and uh and, I, and, I, and it, it, it taught me a bit 
uh, the, the first business of just the requisite skill set that I didn't necessarily have to grow so aggressively so fast. And so I wanted to just more take my time in the in the in the, um, in the second technology company to uh, just just scale it a little bit more efficiently. Yeah, I, I, I see that a lot with especially the the contractors that are just coming out. Maybe they left a company, they start their own business, and they want to try to grow really fast to be a big competitor of that company they just left or show people that they can do something. And like you said, ego, and you end up making mistakes. You end up spending money that you don't really need to spend. Uh, and then when you have more people, you usually have more problems as well. Uh, and so if you're not prepared to handle those problems, then you, you run into some issues. Uh, I want to talk about this fourth company that you started, because I know that there are some lessons learned from this one. You sell your both companies, uh, construction side and or you know gutters, siding, all that stuff, and the technology company. Where do you go next? Yeah, so I at that point I, I really I, I kind of just followed more of what my interests were. I, I loved playing basketball, uh, but played in school, nice. and so I started a company that was kind of like focused on sports. And okay. uh, a friend of mine from college and I. Uh, he, his family manufactured athletic uniforms, uh, overseas in the the Philippines. He's Filipino. And, uh, we, we love basketball. We played adult leagues together, rec leagues together. So he started to, um, bring in uniforms from his family's plants to outfit the local sports teams that we were playing in the leagues. And it was really incredible stuff. Philippines, unlike places like China, it's not mass production, high quantity uh, goods. It's it's smaller quantities, but it's like custom goods. You get really great prices right. on, um, you know, if you need to order 20 uh, basketball uniforms uh, that look a particular way and have particular lettering, et cetera, you could do that. And it's significantly uh, more efficient pricing than, than doing that stateside. And so it was just kind of like a hobby that we were doing to like outfit the leagues that we were in. And then it turned into, hey, this person is a coach in this AAU team. Hey, I want to buy uniforms. And hey, I want to buy uniforms. And hey, I want to buy uniforms. And then we sold, um, we created a kind of a uniform line that we would sell through mom and pop sporting goods stores all over the country that were selling mm-hmm. to their own local um, high schools and colleges. You know, the, the practice okay. and game uniforms. Yeah. And so we got into football baseball softball basketball um and uh i think we had about 75 dealers through the country oh wow yeah at its peak and um but we just um i wanted to scale that business to to a much bigger business but i kind of got a bit lazy because i had the successes of the most two recent Mm. companies that sold and you know to be fair i just i had a really dull sword you know, I just, I just, I made a lot of assumptions. Um, at the time when I was losing the business, I, I blamed a lot of it on, oh, the economy turned and, and schools started to mm-hmm. shut down and, and, and uh, the, the financial crisis and, and um, what else did I blame it on? We, we had f- four super typhoons, I think it was in 2010 or nine, nine or 10, there was four super typhoons that hit the Philippines oh, back to back to back to back. I don't know if people remember it, but it was like 30 feet of water in Manila. And that's where our Goodness. manufacturing plants were. And it caused us a lot of problems. But, but the truth was, I, I wasn't actually taking the right ownership over what the real problem mm-hmm. was. I didn't have any contingency manufacturing 
There was no backup plans if something had happened with dealing with overseas manufacturing. And uh, we didn't diversify our customer base. There's just things that I look at now and I look back and I say, oh yeah, I could have totally done this in a different way. At the time, because my ego was so involved, it was just easy for me to point the finger at all these other things that were happening to me as opposed to taking ownership of having kind of created a lot of those problems. So hard. And manufacturing is, especially global manufacturing, is such a different beast uh, than a a tech company or, you know, a local contractor. Uh, Man, so you had three successful exits from these other companies. What was the exit like for this one? The exit was... I took all of the money that I had and I put it in a barrel and I burned it. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably what it felt like. You know, the interesting thing, Khalil, about what it felt like is that I didn't understand why at the time I felt this way, but it felt like a death. Like like someone very Mm. close to me. It felt like I had died. And it was because I had put so much of my identity in the need to make money. And when I was, when I was making yeah. money, I was the greatest guy in the world. You know, it's so much confidence. And I was just like walking around Jacksonville, Florida with my chest puffed out and a big fish in a small <laughs> pond, you know, and I was like a Louis Vuitton Don <coughs> and spending money on my friends. And I just felt great. And when I lost the money, mm-hmm. yeah, it's, it's terrible to like not do well in business, but I, I didn't actually die. It just felt like I died. And, and, and I know yeah. now it was because I put so much of my identity in the need to have been successful at work. And I didn't know how to separate like who Ali is from who the business was. And so when how I lost did you the, do that, how did I do, how did I do what? How did you, how did you separate yourself ultimately? Cause it, I mean, you, you seem like you're in a much better place now. Yeah, it's a good, great question. So I, it was a really, I, I was in a depression. I, I'd, I'd probably mm-hmm. gain 30 pounds. So I was just trying to eat my way through all these like painful feelings that I was dealing mm-hmm. with. I was locked myself up in my house. I got so scared of customers mm-hmm. calling and yelling at me saying, you know, you ruined my business and I depended on you. And, and for anyone yeah. that knows me personally, that was really hard for me to let people down and to hear that constantly was, it was, but I, it needed like the shell needed to be cracked really hard to give me the chance to kind of have the opportunity to, to come back from it. So it's kind of like it all came tumbling down. It was, gave me that, that uh, Phoenix rising from the ashes experience. And I don't know, I feel very fortunate that, that I was able to uh, not have that drive me into like substance abuse or any other things. Uh, I guess kind of, I mean, the food, it was like some, there was definitely some emotional abuse in there, but there was a moment where I woke up one day and I was like, okay, it's time to start rebuilding this thing. And Mm. I can't put my finger triggered that I I just, um, I just, I just didn't want to feel that way anymore. And there was a little voice inside of my, my, my heart and my head at the time when I, everything else got stripped away that, that I'm sure it has so much to do with my parents and like the struggle they had to come over here with nothing from another country to escape a war. And maybe those lessons that that kind of rearing was just in there and something something mm-hmm. finally got triggered at, at this like base element. But I woke up one day and I said, you know, I, I don't want to be unhappy anymore. And there was just a moment of acceptance. I just accepted that like, OK, I, mm. I, I, I failed. It was really hard for me to accept that I failed. And yeah. um, and so I I started to pick the pieces back together and it was just, hey, 
what are the building blocks here to figure out how I want to move forward? I, I have to figure out how to make some money. I have to figure out how to pay yeah. people back that I borrowed money from when I was trying to save the business. And I just, I just want, I want to be happy. So there was some have to stuff and there was some want to stuff. Right. And I just started peeling it back. You know, I asked myself the question, like what actually makes me happy? I'd never asked myself that question with work before. <laughs> I only was, so important. I was just focused on what would be the fastest way to make the money. And, uh, and don't get me wrong. I, I love making money. And, sure. and I want to, I want to make a lot. I want to take care of my family and, and, and my immediate family and my extended family and be good to my friends. And, but I don't want it so bad that I will let it rob me of my happiness ever. I'll never work mm -hmm. at a place where I'm not happy with where I work or don't feel proud and, and passionate about, about what I'm doing because you never get the time back, you know? No, so, you don't. So anyway, that, I asked myself the question, what would make me happy? And I remember the, 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 the joy that I had when I had the technology companies. And I actually mm -hmm. just always think about how much and how lovely uh, it is to sell. And, and mm. I wasn't necessarily a great business owner, but I was always a great salesperson. And my businesses grew because of top line. And it wasn't until, gotcha. it wasn't until I couldn't outsell the bottom line with my top line capabilities because of outside influence like uh, the, the economy that I, I really got my ass handed to me. So um, right. uh, so I said, hey, software sales makes like the most sense in the world. And, and the promise that sure. I made myself was I challenged myself to go to the place in the world where I felt like the smartest people were for the thing that would make me happy. And once mm -hmm. I decided on software sales, I said, okay, I'm going to move to Silicon Valley. So I, I up and moved to San Francisco. Wow. Man, there's so many lessons there. And uh, I mean, I think one, obviously, to wrapping up your identity and your work, it's so easy to let what you do define who you are rather than who you are define what you do. Mm -hmm. And as I mean, even just the lesson that you mentioned just now of focusing so much on the top line can really hurt you. And there's so many contractors out there that are just they're looking for the next job, period. Right. They're, they're trying to sell the next job and they're not thinking about how that job might affect their business going forward. And we talk about that a lot on the podcast and just knowing your margins, knowing your numbers, having a contingency plan like you, like you said for other manufacturers. There's so many good lessons that, are, that I hope people are, are drawing from this. But there is a phoenix rising from the ashes, like you said. And it's probably not easy to transfer from being the owner, the one that makes the decisions, back into being maybe the employee. And if you're in a sales role, there is a, a sense of ownership maybe of your schedule. But uh, what was that like? Where did you start? Did you get into like an executive level right away? I highly doubt it, right? You no, had to start somewhere. No, I, I did, definitely didn't get into an executive level right away. I, um, I, I was, it was very hard for me to admit the failure. I, I, mm -hmm. I remember, um, you know, I'm, I'm the only son of, uh, of three siblings or two older sisters, really, really, really incredible women, very talented. Mm. And, uh, I always just tried to do everything I could to just keep up with the example that they set. And if I could be a fraction of the people, um, and the successes that my parents and, and my sisters were, I would have felt like, you know, I'm, I'm doing a good job at life. Uh, but it was really hard for me to admit that I failed. And when I had to tell my parents, that was like the moment where actually it all broke. Cause I, I remember I, 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 I was in their kitchen and to admit to them that the business was going to go under and, and I had to shut it down. And I, I, I cried for probably 
15 minutes trying to tell them the story because I, I'd always wanted to like, you know, feel like what I was doing would make them proud, you know, so they could tell their friends and other family that I go, look what my son is doing. And, and when I got past that part of my ego, all I cared about was learning. I, I, when I, when I found the place that I wanted to, to work at, uh, to, to get my first job in software sales, I wouldn't care if they would have told me that I needed to sit in the copy room and just staple the papers for the people that, that came in there. I, I would, I would have read every single piece of paper and learned anything I could about that business so that I could have a discussion with somebody to show someone else how much I was learning and that they would give me a chance mm-hmm. to get out of the copier room. You know, the, 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 yeah. the role didn't make any difference to me. I just, I just wanted in. So I, just wanted in. yeah, I took the kind of lo- lowest level, um, IC role that you could have. And, um, yeah. everybody in the business was like, wait, we, we hired a gutter cleaner to be our software salesperson. <laughs> <laughs> what was going on? Uh, but, but it was, it was really cool. Yeah. Well, and I, I bet as you, you know, if you do accept that and you have that humility, things actually tend to work out pretty well for you better than in most cases, if you do the opposite, because you know, there's that the, the famous parable of, you know, don't take the seat of honor at the table, but be called up to the seat of honor at the table. You know, if the king's at the head of the table, go and sit as far away as possible and be called up rather yeah. than be demoted down. And it's a little easier to go up a ladder than down a ladder. So what was that like? I mean, I'm sure that you had a pretty fairly quick progression up, right? Yeah, I, um, so I, I was, I, I got good at identifying where I felt like I would be um, motivated to succeed, right? I, I, yeah. I, 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 I broke down with just first principle thinking, what are the basic elements of like the definition of, of success and happiness for me? And yeah. being able to drive myself forward from there, it felt so good. I was just like a Peter Pan, kind of like floating around everywhere that I would go at work. And no matter what, I always had a smile on my face. And no matter what a boss asked me to do or what, I, no problem, I got it. No problem, I got you. Oh, yeah. somebody wants to, nobody wants to volunteer? Okay, I'll do it, you know? And I was, I was so determined to learn that it just, yeah. it just, it just became really infectious. And, and I, I also, I, I, I applied my business acumen to mm-hmm. determining what would be the best opportunity for me. I didn't just go work for any company. I, I could have gotten a job in a, as an SDR or sales development representative in a big company. Um, I could mm-hmm. have uh, used my network to get me a job at a place that um, was just a job to have. But I, yeah. I profiled what I wanted the opportunity to be. So I, I wanted to work at a startup. I really loved the energy of a startup. I wanted yeah. to not be at a place where it was the the first opportunity for the founders of that startup. I, I didn't know anything. Mm-hmm. I needed to be around people who are very experienced. And um, yeah. and I wanted to work somewhere where it was a really emerging space with a really big opportunity for the mm-hmm. company and that they were um, focused on mission and purpose. You know, they they, 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 they yeah. wanted to do something besides just make money. And, uh, mm-hmm. and so I, I found that in the opportunity of the first place that I worked at, at MongoDB. And it just was like the alarm clock for my life. It's, it set my soul so on cool. fire. And, and if you love what you do and you're enjoying it and it's not like work, that's, uh, life's too short to be somewhere that you hate. And as long as you're yeah. willing to put in the work and you're determined, you can put yourself in a position to be somewhere where, 
it's the right fit for who you are as a person. And when those things come together, it was like magic. They, they, they didn't want to give me the job. I had to like really like annoy the people that were in the position as well. <laughs> Why didn't they want to give you the job? I didn't meet one of the criteria for the job. Which was? I didn't have a college degree. I had no experience in software sales. Oh, come no, on. That's, and you think about, 2000, that's think about 2011, that, that was still really prevalent. That, that didn't change for people sure. until the last like three or four years in, in the technology yeah. space. Uh, but 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 there was um, I never sold software before. I had no infrastructure software experience, no database software experience, and I was yeah. trying to ask to be considered for a highly technical enterprise yeah. infrastructure software sales job, and uh, and these folks were really talented. They they're the people who uh, yeah. who founded uh, DoubleClick that that sold to Google for oh, for, really? for five billion dollars and uh, yeah. And um, it was like a darling, upcoming darling of the of the software space type of startup. And um, I, you know, they I, it wasn't necessarily like a, technically a probationary period, but they were definitely on the like, this guy's got a short leash. <laughs> if this doesn't work out, we'll end yeah. it quick. Uh, I, but within four months, I was the top sales rep uh, in the entire company, and then I was the top sales leader in the entire company for a couple of years, and. Um, you know, my team's generated at one year 55% of the overall revenue. We, we oh, went wow. from five million my first year to 20 million our second year to 40 million our third year that I was there. And then we were on a trajectory towards 80 million um, that fourth year, uh, which was when, when I ended up leaving. But it was an, inc it was an incredible experience and I, I, I enjoy every second of it. And I got to be around really, really I, I, I'm talking a lot now on this podcast, but I just I kept my mouth shut a lot over there and just listened. Yeah, you know? <laughs> that's very that's really cool. I, I think the combination of your humility plus that willingness to learn and the clarity that you had is honestly really profound. A lot of people don't have that clarity about what they right. want, and we talk about your vision really being what should guide you. And I think a vision for you personally is always what do you yeah. want. And that's a hard question to answer, and you, and you knew that. So I think that's definitely something that people can take away from this. You've, you've advanced throughout the tech world, and now you're a CRO, a chief revenue officcer. Um, and for people who don't know that, what, what that is, essentially sales executive, yeah. right? And uh, you're at Hover now. Tell us a little bit about how you got into Hover. And uh, yeah, how, you've been there for, I, the, I think, your longest this is now your almost six years, so your longest tenure in almost anything, yeah, right? Yeah, this is the longest time that I've spent on anything, one thing in my professional career. And yeah, uh, that's great. I, really fortunate to have had the opportunity to come across um, AJ Altman, our CEO and founder. At the time that I uh, was introduced to the business, I had gone from the first opportunity where I worked that was like set my soul on fire type of experience. And I just I blindly followed my CRO uh, from from uh, MongoDB to um, the second company that I worked at in software sales at a time when there was a CEO change at Mongo and there was a, there was a transition period and I, mm. I ended up moving on and uh, you know I, I the second experience wasn't what I thought it was going to be I just I just leave it at that and, and but it was a really incredible learning experience. It was it was yeah. it was much more as difficult, I guess, is a is a fair nice word to use. But uh, it wasn't what I was expecting, 
And it was really challenging to show up every day and, uh, and, and end up just being, um, present on a daily basis. And if I hadn't have been able to, um, rely on and lean on a lot of the really incredible life experiences that I have had up to that point and the, and the, and the rearing that I had from my parents about, about just being nice. I always kept my, 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 my ambition was always fierce, but my kindness was always what I led with. And mm -hmm. that, um, set of relationships that I built in that business, uh, that could have been damaged by me showing up angry to work every day or, or frustrated, frustrated, yeah. stressed and frustrated. Uh, that is what gave me the, even the opportunity to learn about hover because one of the coworkers that I had there actually worked at Intel straight out of college together with our founder and CEO, AJ Altman. They became, they became oh, okay. very good friends when he went on, his name is Vijay Sankaran. I love him. Uh, Vijay, if you ever hear this, I thank you so much. Um, he, <laughs> he went on to get his MBA from Columbia AJ left Intel and went to the Department of Defense for a little while, but then and then volunteered as a Marine to fight in the Iraq War, uh, became a captain in the Marines. Oh, wow. But they'd always said they wanted to work together again, and Hover was their opportunity to do so. So he left the second company that I was working at before I did to come work at Hover, and he basically told AJ, hey, look, I know this crazy Afghani guy that I work with at the last place. He, he's our guy for sales. I know we're really early, but we're looking for like a, a sales leader type of person and, and whoever else you're talking to, that's your guy. And so AJ started to talk to me, but it was at a time in my life where I was, I was tired. <laughs> you know, I, I, I'd spent yeah. six years grinding. I, I paid off close to a half million in debt. I was just recently debt free. I, that my MongoDB was like on its way to be a really successful public company, my, my private shares that I had in them, the options everybody wanted a piece of, I was going to go sit on a beach and get sand down my pants in Thailand or something, you know? And, <laughs> and uh, but I met yeah. AJ and, and he, even though I was like shut off when I first met him thinking like, Oh, I, I'll, I'll, I owe it to, to, to VJ to, to meet the guy and I'll help him find somebody else. After a couple of like interactions of me being really stubborn to the idea, I had just opened up my, my ears to listen. And AJ is a really mm -hmm. an incredibly impressive founder and leader. And once I started to really pay attention to what was going on and what the opportunity was with the business and what AJ stood for as a human being, uh, then all of a sudden that exhaustion that I had that I thought I needed a big break from just went totally went away. And, and I said, hey, s sign me up, mm -hmm. coach. Man, that's awesome. So you've been there for six years. What does Hover do? What, what was so exciting about the opportunity that you had to say yes to Hover? What, what is compelling yeah, about sure. them? Uh, so just a little bit of context. When, when uh, AJ first um, you know, got his hands on the technology and, and the, the first application of the business was actually an uh, aerial imagery rendering solution. They would take uh, photos that were coming in from drones, satellites, uh, things that f could fly over war zones and 3D reconstructing the uh, building scenes that were in the photographs to um, sell the technology oh. to the Department of Defense, a JSOC, DOD. And uh, they, they used it to do, um, you know, takeoffs of buildings in war zones. And, uh, and what, wow. what AJ came to find is that, you know, there, 
as the as the camera sensor in the mobile phone became much more developed, he found that there's mm -hmm. going to be a use case that's much broader and more applicable than just that aerial use case uh, for the military application, and right. had a really great idea to pivot the entire business to uh, turn it into a mobile application that uses the camera sensor and the mm -hmm. phone to allow users to take pictures of the outside of any physical structures started we focused in the first phase of our of life of the business on um, residential uh, and so at that time they launched with uh, allowing users to capture eight six to eight photos around the outside of a property through a guided mobile experience really easy to use and what you would get as an output is a structured three-dimensional data set that was an exact replica three-dimensionally of the home where the uh, material substrates were segmented, the line types were all segmented, and you could get measurement data as well as the ability to design in 3D on the home. Mm. And we they launched the tech without actually knowing they were going into home improvement. They considered a bunch of mm. different um, industries and it was home improvement where we found product market fit. Uh, back even before right. I started and uh, and so that's 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 the co the core capability uh, which is like our uh, point solution uh, that we started the company with. Now we have a, a myriad of other offerings that help um, users uh, through, through more of a platform play where we have other software that we've built around estimation and material ordering mm -hmm. and things of that nature. But, but yeah. that, that, that's the basic application of the tech. Hey, cash flow contractors. We know you are always looking for ways to get the job done simpler and faster. So you can spend more time working on your business rather than in your business. That's why we recommend taking a look at Hover. Hover is an easy to use feature pack solution that simplifies the process of selling and producing all of your exterior jobs. Hover is trusted by thousands of home improvement professionals from contractors to the nation's leading materials manufacturers. Hover transform any home into an accurate, fully measured 3D model with property measurements. And I mean, seriously, all the measurements with to the inch detail, fascia, soffit depth, linear feet of trim board, you name it. But it doesn't just give you measurements. Hover gets you faster, more accurate quotes, dependable material quantities, and places your orders with suppliers all in one place, helping contractors like yourselves to optimize and grow your business. Visit hover.to today or download the Hover app to learn more. The experiences that I had leading up to taking the opportunity to work at Hover were very, very pivotal and, and, and really seminal experiences for, for my own life, but also in the way that they have impacted my, my leadership philosophy, Khalil. I, I used to think mm -hmm. that uh, it was just about putting up the best X's and O's and the best strategy to tell people what it was that we needed to do, needed to, do to go from strategy to achieving our goals in terms of like how you execute. But what I came to find right. is there's so much of an emotional intelligence aspect to the ability to be successful that the best laid plans with the worst laid people are not going to go anywhere, <laughs> no matter what. Yeah. And so at that point, I realized that culture and team building are really important. And for me, I went through a life experience that I had to actually legitimately have that shell cracking experience to start to figure it out. 
And one of the things that I have been driven uh, very intensely by over the last 10 years is a belief that you actually don't have to have your shell cracked to get to a better place mm. so long as you have some basic information that someone is willing to share with you, you have a willingness to improve, mm -hmm. and you have the consistency of approach to start to reshape the way that you uh, perceive the life that you're living and, and what your definitions of success are and all the things that I went through because I had a very kind of like moment in time experience. But I realized like, oh, wait a minute. As a leader, I get eight to 10 hours of access to people five days a week. And if I can, yeah. uh, if I can utilize that opportunity to share some of the things that I've learned for how I've been able to build a much more holistically wealthy life. It's a universal truth. You know, it's, it's, it, it just, it can't not feel good for you so long as you have at least a willingness to be inquisitive. And so when I thought about yeah. all of these attributes for how I would show up at work and how I could architect teams and culture, I made sure to try to do everything in my power to infuse those things into the culture. But in an environment where we were acquiring people who I knew would be willing participants into this place where you don't just show up and execute against the strategy, you show up and identify parts of yourself that you want to work to improve for your own benefit. And then the company as a residual effect gets mm -hmm. the benefit from your benefit. Wow, I think that's a pretty profound uh, realization. And I mean, it, it's so true because a lot of times, and I'm thinking of the application for contractors here, but the, the sentiment around the industry a lot of times is that you can't find good people and that uh, there's, you can't, you can't hire good people anymore. And they just, they don't, they slack on the job. If you're not there, you've got to have somebody to manage them and you've got to be present all the time and they don't want to sell or whatever it is. I, I hear it from contractors all the time. Um, but I, what I think that you're saying and what I see a lot of times is there's not really an investment in those people and you're not providing them with the structure and the, uh, just personal investment and emotional investment to help them succeed in those roles that will ultimately get you to hire good people and have a place worth working at for good people and um, allow you to, to run a team that is going to do the work without you and hold themselves accountable and each other accountable. Uh, and that's what culture does, right? Absolutely. Uh, you, you can, you don't have to take that approach. If you want to run a, you don't, if you want to run an organization that's built off of, you know, they call them punitive management practices. You, you, you absolutely, <laughs> yeah. you absolutely can do that. And you can, you can terrify people into production. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's kind of like the philosophy of um, squeeze the drops of blood from the stone. And, and, and then you got to throw mm -hmm. the stone away. And that's not very efficient. Yeah. Where you're turning people over no. and, and, and you have to re-ramp new people into the business on a more regular basis yeah. than you otherwise would. If you actually just took that stone and kind of breathe a little bit of life into it and, and turn it into a gem, 
and and so people will they will fight and die for you if they feel aligned to your purpose and they believe that you genuinely care about their well-being yeah and it's easy to keep people around when the going is good but especially in this economic climate we're about to go into yeah if you are not building a strong culture when the going gets tough people are going to go so true man so true what are what are some of the ways for like your direct reports i know that you're not necessarily and maybe you are but you're not probably dealing with the sdrs of hover but for the direct reports you have how do you invest in them as a person yeah so i think first and foremost i try to respect them as much as possible by being doing the best that i can to be the most authentic version of myself so that I set an example mm. for the fact that the version of them that I want is just them. I want to do everything in my yeah. power to try to help them get to a place of psychological safety where they have really high social engagement. And, and what that means when you have high social engagement is you're comfortable to take risks. You're, you're comfortable to come up with ideas. You become more innovative. Mm-hmm. And you, you feel comfortable to communicate. And, and we talk about those skills beyond just um of course of course you have to have the competency there and, and operationally you have to be sound Th- those things are table stakes you know is, where's the pipeline at sure. you know are we launching products in a really great way yeah. are we developing the skills of the people on the team are you developing your own skills but that part of it the the what are we doing to help you increase your capacity to succeed what are, what are your own growth areas that you want to work on to be better over time so that even if you decide to leave Hover, these skills that we work with you to develop, they're transferable. They're your skills. They're not Hover skills. And your hope is that that allows people to be more endearing to, to the business because they know that the business cares about yeah. developing them in an environment where they feel worthy and validated you know yeah man that's so good um it's a it's so much of a different approach because a lot of times it's man what are you doing for me i'm paying you a salary are you are you putting in your hours um but it's a different it's flipping on its head what can i do for you how can i help you in your career how can i how can i use this opportunity as a launch pad for you and uh you know benefit from your success in this company as well I think I want to talk a little bit and shift gears to hear about the sales that you guys do because at a core level, you're helping construction companies that are working on the exterior of the home adopt technology into their process for selling and operations. And that's not a very easy thing a lot of times. We're seeing the tech industry get really ingrained into the construction industry, but it's coming a little bit delayed uh, compared to other industries. So how do you do that? How are you successfully helping these contractors and, and getting them to adopt the technology that Hover is offering? So one of the things that, uh, and, and I think this is one of the reasons why AJ really was um, interested to, to have me fill the position, uh, even though I, I had never uh, been fully responsible for running a sales organization before. I, I made it up to being uh, a regional vice president uh, in the uh, company that I was at prior to Hover, but the combination of the fact that I 
spend all the time that I did in Florida, that I had the construction business, uh, that I that I uh, sold successfully at MongoDB. He knew that it's a very unique thing to try to digitally transform an industry, right? And yeah, it's, it's, not it's not easy. easy. And one of the things that, that you have to do is you have to meet the users where they are, it's, it's especially in the beginning when you're trying to develop support and critical mass for the business. And what that, um, what that meant was we needed to lean just as much on relationship as we did on the software itself because the industry is so relationship driven and I think a lot of the mistakes that most software companies make in the space, uh, not all of them, but, 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 but most software companies, uh, especially ones that don't come out of people that work from the industry, is that they don't understand the power yeah. uh, and the impact of the trust that you have to have with a contractor. And for some reason, I, I guess because it's just eluded the industry for so long because the nature of the trades and the crafts and working with your hands and technology wasn't at the forefront of adoption for for contractors um, there's some element of fear and anxiety towards that adoption yeah. process and most contractors won't admit it because everybody's got a hard time admitting <laughs> that they're afraid of something but if you can help take someone in a really simple way through what we call the zero to one experience the that you don't know anything about our technology, we're not gonna throw you in the deep end of the most complicated stuff that we do. It's really important for us to just right. give you stair steps that you can take to just feel comfortable to take that first step, right? Easy to understand, easy yeah. to adopt, easy to implement. And when we, when we haven't done that in the past, it hasn't worked well. But as we've continued to mature yeah. and evolve in the space and we've realized that, oh wow, this is about ease of use initially. And then once people start to gain their confidence mm -hmm. with adoption, then you can absolutely get to more complicated solutions, uh, but you have to stay there and stick with them. So, you know, it's the reason why we came out with our new construction solution where you can upload blueprints and all it is is just a file, you just upload a file. Like if it's too complicated for you to start off downloading an app and taking pictures around a home, no problem. Use our inspection checklist feature. Use our blueprints feature, or excuse me, our new construction feature that allows you to upload blueprints and get takeoffs from blueprints. There's things that are really simple to just get going. And then once you get going, mm -hmm. then we can kind of like elevate the adoption to the next solution. Yeah. You know, what I see a lot of times for contractors is there's not necessarily the concern from the owner or the decision maker who's looking at the software, but he's more worried about some of these techs or entry level people in his company that are going to have to use the software and, you know, probably more from his side or her side, I'm gonna have to train these right. people on this. What does that look like? And how do you address yeah. that? So uh, it kind of goes back to one of the value props that we actually espouse to contractors because training and enablement is a really, really hot topic for folks. Uh, especially when it comes to the, um, the, the dynamic in the industry today where Contractors are not hiring salespeople and uh, folks in their organization that are experts at being tradesmen and craftsmen uh, anymore. It's, it's people who actually know yeah. very little about the trades and the crafts. And that's one of the reasons why they're so big on Hover is because our technology, the measurement output, the 3D model 
it helps obfuscate the need to have to understand those things and it really shortens the ramp time of the employees that are coming into mm -hmm. the business and so it simplifies the enablement experience for the the customer uh, but in terms of the the specific adoption of our own product we have staffed and resourced a dedicated customer enablement team and their only function and, and their primary responsibility excuse me not their only function but their primary responsibility is I'll help users gain comfort on how to utilize the tech as a as a resource yeah. after they've decided yeah we want to go with hover don't just leave it at their front door and say okay thanks we appreciate you go learn how to do this on your own right so we have a big investment yeah. on, on education and training yeah that's great and I, I think I think what you the point you made is so it's true there's so many the construction industry has to get younger too there have to be more people coming in that are younger and if you are getting a younger person into your your company as a contractor and they don't know how to take a picture with their phone that's a unique young yeah. person i would say but also it it's a it's nice that you don't have to get them up on a ladder taking measurements of so many different things you just have yeah. to take a picture uh and i think that's a real big difference maker and it, it kind of goes into my next point of for contractors systems are such a big important thing that need to be standardized but there's not enough time i guess for contractors to really get to them is what we find and i think technology is is really important because it almost can set your systems for you rather than having to have a manual on how to take measurements of siding window gutters roof slope all that stuff uh if it's just the picture and there's a process that okay this is where you go to find the information here's how you download the report here's how you send it off to the supply house i mean that creates your systems for you so the last question i asked was about the improvement that technology can have or software can have on your systems as a contractor how it's difficult to have uh systems because there's not enough time to work on the business sometimes you're just working in it but um yeah, would love to kind of hear how technology uh, or software can influence systems for contractors. Yeah, it's an interesting question because I, I, I think there's like two sides to that same coin. One of the things that you have to be really careful about is that technology can really help in a positive way with making systems more efficient, but also, if not implemented correctly in terms of a technical strategy for what you want to include in your tech stack as a contractor you could get into a real hornet's yeah. nest real fast and one of the things i yeah so yeah one can. of the things that we saw happen in, in covid was contractors went from oh yeah this technology revolution is going to come in five or seven years to it hit them right in the face right then and there because of the change in interaction with the homeowner and contractors went from no tech to mm -hmm. what i started to call smorgasbord tech and they just adopted adopted a bunch of solutions and the systems don't talk to one another and it's really hard for them they're not getting the value that they should be getting out of it and and uh, that, that's why we've, we've always taken a keep it simple stupid approach at hover right and and if you are very thoughtful about the way that you implement a technical strategy uh and we work with a lot of contractors on not even with our own hover solution but in general and uh, you know what what a great tech strategy could be for them as they get started and and we try to tell them the same thing every time find something very simple to get started with whether it's maybe yes. uh, you know marketing automation or mailchimp or, or something that you could just take from an excel spreadsheet if you don't have a crm 
or a Google Sheet, and it can just upload on a nightly basis, and you can send some thank you emails out to your customers in an automated fashion, you know, uh, or, or prospects. Yeah. And uh, and once you get your legs underneath you a little bit, then start to work yourself towards other solutions that are no-brainers to get for the business, do not have a very high cost of acquisition, and, and, and do not have a high cost burden to implement. And then once you feel like you're starting to see some efficiencies from those things, you'll also learn along the way. You'll understand, did this make my system more efficient? What did I learn from this buying experience from this software company uh, that I can apply to the next solution? And then kind of work your way up in terms of um, the size of the budget that you're going to apply towards a solution that you're... Like, don't start your first software purchase with a $100,000 CRM solution that you need for your business. You know, it's... um, it's complicated and you're probably not going to use it because you don't know how to use it. Uh, And you're also not going to have habits around it. So much of software being productive for you is that you have a habitual use of it, that it's integral to your workflows on a daily basis. And if you're not doing it on a daily basis, it's not a habit, you're less likely to use it. And if you're paying hundred grand a year or whatever it is for your software budget, it doesn't. And and you alluded to it earlier, Khalil, which is your users have to be bought into it. If you buy it and the yes. users don't use it, it's a problem. Yeah, a <laughs> big problem. Yeah, and, and well, and, and you have to you have to model right. that behavior for them, right? You can't just ex- buy it and expect the user to use it. And oh, they need to figure it out. Why aren't you using this? I, I I can't stand when someone's not willing to do the work themselves, but they expect yeah. someone else to do it. And that happens a lot of times with the software, where the reason why the team's not bought in is because the leadership isn't bought in. Um, so it's so interesting. I, I, what I like about uh, Hover is it is easy enough for you to use. It is a simple tool, right? Uh, taking a picture is not very difficult on right. phone for most people. So I think it definitely falls into that. Maybe one of the first things you can get is a tech stack. Um, what are some of the other objections that you find common among contractors towards technology in general, maybe even Hover yep. specifically? So some of the things that we hear on a regular basis uh, that we, we've learned to address in our sales process, which is, which is now much more customer-centric yeah. than it's ever been before. Uh, our objective is to find out what pain points and problems you're trying to solve and see whether or not Hover makes sense for you, first and foremost. But right. when we've been kind of going through this evolution as a sales organization, we ended up finding out that if you can't do two things. If you can't fit within the workflow, you better have a really strong value prop to get them to try to consider a change to their workflow. And and that value prop includes the kind of the uh, the WIFM, the, the what's in it for me at the user level. Because mm-hmm. if the user can't see a value in the software solution, they're absolutely not going to make change to their current process. Because as you know, the good, really good contractors are driven by strict process. And they, they have a sales methodology mm-hmm. they follow. They have a, a, a production protocol that they follow. Uh, they're an efficiency business, you know. They're, they're, they're trying to be McDonald's. How, how, how yeah. efficient can I process this job and turn the capital over? And uh, the, the biggest mistakes that we yeah. made were when we wouldn't um, align to, the, to a strong enough value prop within the business to get the contractor to understand, oh, this either already does weave within my existing workflow or it's worth it to consider a change because 
the flip side of what Hover brings to me is a significant um, improvement in uh, close rates or ASPs, and and so mm-hmm. that's uh, uh, that 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 was a big learning curve for us, and and some of the objections that we would hear along the way. Really interesting. Yeah, I, I want to, you know, you know, we've talked about values. We've talked about culture at a team, how important that is, how it can really change the trajectory of your business. And especially retaining employees is such a big thing right now. It's so hard to find them in the construction industry. You've got to retain them and that can be helpful for that. But technology also plays a role in that. I think, how, do, how are you seeing it as a retainment tool for employees for uh, companies whenever they ad- yeah. adopt software? Uh, what's what's the advantage? It's almost that what's in it for me. Right. What are the users well, saying? What, about what's it? been really interesting to see over the last almost six years now that I've been working at Hover, this this, this uh, September will be six years, is we were at the onset of this Amazonification of the country when I first started. I, I mean, we, we were pretty squarely yeah. in it, but but in the last six years, it's, it's hyper accelerated, especially because of COVID, uh, even more so put it on steroids. But that also changed the consumer experience for what they expect Mm -hmm. in terms of everything. And that includes home improvement services and remodeling, whether restoration or retail. And if you think that the everyday average homeowner on a a where we are today and a going forward basis will continue to reward contractors who don't interact with them the way they expect to be interacted with, you're going to end up selling to people whose average age is 65 years old and higher. And, 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 and you should look at that. You might still yeah. be successful, but look at the average age of the customer that you're actually earning business with. The, the, the Gen Xers of the world that are now maturing into home ownership, those are people who want more autonomy in the process because of technology. They want... Um, to be able to do research and discovery about a company because they have access and are fluent with the internet. And if you don't tell a good story with a website and you don't have a way for your, to interact with people that are kind of like, they've been calling them alternative leads or alternative path to purchase a lot of contractors today. But that's, that is what's going mm-hmm. to be the norm on a go forward basis. And I, and I tell contractors all the time, I said, do, do you know what it, oh, actually, I said, do you surf? And most of them say, uh, no, Allie, what are you talking about? I don't surf. And then I said, why are you asking yeah. me that? I said, well, you know what makes a good surfer? And they said, uh, no, what? Uh, I said, well, it's, it's people who anticipate the wave before it comes. They don't wait for the wave to get here yeah. to then try to catch it. You can't catch a wave once it's already there. It's, it's not possible. And you, mm-hmm. you, you should do the same thing with the way you think about your business strategy. It's like, what is the wave that's coming, not is the wave that I'm Sorry. in? or you're gonna get gobbled up. And then once people can start to think a little bit more unconstrained, and they start looking at technology in a different way, that's also all the employees that they want. They wanna be able to have them that relate to the customers that they're trying to sell to. And those employees are much Mm -hmm. more likely to be at a place where it's easy to keep information in a CRM because they're not trying to go ask the secretary to get the file out of the file cabinet, you know? And, And there is marketing automation yeah. and rehash programs that are digital and, and things of that nature. You're much more likely to have um, um, a stronger attachment as an employee to a company that's making those types of investments. Right. And I mean, 
as an employee, if I know that uh, this company that I'm working for uses software, I know that at this role, if I'm trying to advance, I probably that's going to help me in that transition and in, in, in that launchpad aspect of my career. But if I'm working at this company that's doing outdated processes, we're just not utilizing the tech that's available in there, I feel like I'm going to get left out uh, and left behind in the in, as far as my career goes in this industry. So it's definitely something to consider. And I think that there's quite an intersection here of technology, software, uh, with culture and values. And I think there's many similarities between the two that, you know, the the most successful contractors and construction companies out there are heavily invested into their culture and they're heavily invested into their technology and they're riding that wave. And there's people that are not catching the wave and they're getting left behind. And it's those that are not looking to the two. And the similarity is that you have to, you have to be willing to try something new, but you also have to be willing to go and learn and have curiosity. And you've got to go and do it yourself as that leader of your company. Um, so I don't know. I, I think that there is an intersection there. And I, I think that you've, you've touched on all these things in a great way. Um, you know, what else do you think that a contractor needs to know about implementing maybe hover into their business? You know, why, why should they, if they're doing exterior contractor uh, contracting, why do they need to be implementing hover into their business? Yeah. I, th- th- there's like, there's very practical and tactical reasons why, the tech is um, so strongly applicable to a contractor's business based solely off the fact that everything starts with the takeoffs. Like having accurate measurements uh, to to order materials off of, to populate your estimates with, and creating consistency within the business. Uh, you know, the cu- customers that uh, start to adopt Hover that then decide that they want to go um, more, more aggressive with our software you know, we quite often hear, hey, we no longer have a war between sales and production. Hover is our standard of truth and our gold standard in the business. If anything's off, we just point to the hover. It deals with any conflicts that we have. And that that that's, that actually is just the starting point of dealing with us with the measurements. Uh, the, 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 the other aspect is I would put us up against anyone else in the industry in terms of the service that we provide to our customers. Mm-hmm. If you look at how much we invest and spend for customer operations. Our customer support staff is, we, we publish a phone number. I ask a- um, <laughs> That's I, so uncommon these it's days. It's uncommon. I, and and you, talk, you, you, talk, you talk to a person, if you need help and you wanna pick up the phone and call, we will answer the phone. And more often than not, we are answering that phone within one minute of the time that you're calling, 95% of the time. And if it storms or something and it spikes, like that, that average flexes a little bit. But I've asked, I don't know, 500 contractors how many times they've been on the phone with Eagle View customer support and any other measurement providers. Customer, I don't mean to just single out Eagle View. Uh, and it's, it, it's, it's either zero or a very small number. And we genuinely care not that others don't, but, but we put our money where our mouth is about providing the resources for our customers to be successful as they look to adopt something that might be new and, and not as easy for them as uh, figuring out how to use a new drill, you know? Yeah. And so the service levels that we provide, 
um, that the, 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 the brand that we're trying very, very hard to promote in the industry is one that cares. We, ge- we, yeah. genu- we genuinely care about the success of our customers and then our success is a byproduct of that success. If we could grow a thousand more contractors into $25 million a year contractors, that's where, that's where real money gets made because you're, you're increasing the size of your own TAM with the existing yeah. customers that you have. Yeah, man. So, so good. Um, I, I think that's such a, a smart business model and in investing in the current customers you have uh, with, that, with that support and, and differentiating yourselves as well. Uh, I love that line of, <laughs> we actually publish a number. We had a guest on two weeks ago, three weeks ago, that uh, they don't publish their number specifically, but it's for a good reason. Yeah. Um, yeah so uh, I want to end with this question. You know, you mentioned your the wave. Uh, the, the best surfers can anticipate that wave. What is the wave for construction technology and technology inside of the construction industry for you? What, what are you anticipating? Yeah, I, I, with, with, with the near-term wave and where we are at today, being able to create a seamless uh, technology workflow that can provide a homeowner a facilitated experience to help simplify the process of um, procuring home improvement services is really mission critical for contractors to be successful. Uh, the consumer doesn't have the patience to go through a process of that's like opaque and uncertain, mm-hmm. you know, and, and make a $25,000 purchase not knowing what it's going to look like. It may, may, maybe people will still do that, but you're going to be more successful if you give them that information, education, insight, and if you can do it through technology uh, versus not. And then as we move forward into the future, that world is coming where the entire process is going to be facilitated with technology. And the Mm -hmm. consumer is going to be able to start to do the majority of, if not all of it, on their own. And, 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 And staying ahead of that curve over time I'm not saying that's going to happen in 12 months, but I'm telling you it's not going to happen in 12 years. Yeah. And, 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 yeah. and people are working to, to figure out how to create that Amazonified experience for the homeowner. And yeah. being able to adopt technology as a strategic advantage for your business, as, 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 as a lever and a weapon that you use to help you stay on that curve allows you to continue to be a player to understand how you can monetize the shift in the behavior of the consumer over time. Yeah, man, yeah. Reduce the friction as much as possible, right? Yes. Um, To provide that frictionless experience. Uh, And if you're you're the contractor out there that doesn't take notes inside of their CRM and is just kind of keeping things in their back pocket, in their their mind, and you know, not not answering the phone, not providing you know a one-stop close uh, for your sales process, all those things. Then you're definitely giving the customer some friction in that process. That's right. So I think Hover provides that ability to do that in a, in a great way, and I, I think that uh, I think that contractors will benefit from adopting Hover as a technology, but also implementing it into their tech stack as a whole. So um, that's great. Man, Ali, I, I really appreciate your time on the podcast. You've given some incredible information and, and storytelling of your 
your experiences and for sharing through all of that. I just, I just love uh, learning about your story and, and how humility has played a role in that. And it's such an important thing for business owners to hear because ego probably is what has driven so many of us to, to start a business. And uh, when, as soon as we are able to let go of that is when we really start to make strides, both professionally and personally. So thanks for sharing your story, man. Thanks for everything that you've done with Hover. How can people connect with you if they'd like to? LinkedIn, I know you're there. Yeah, yeah, I'm on LinkedIn, and I, I, I try my best to – I always answer messages that come into there. I, I haven't posted as much in the recent um, year this year than I have in the past before, but uh, I'm, I'm always keeping an eye on it, and that, that's probably the best way uh, to get in touch okay. with me. My, my email address is really simple, A-L-I, uh, like Muhammad Ali, A-L-I at hover.to, <laughs> and, um, and I try to be as accessible as possible for, for folks if, if they reach out, and I, I really appreciate – the opportunity to have, have met you and, and to get the chance to be on on the show and it's incredible that you're providing this resource for the amazing small business owners and um and and, and contractors that are out in the market um doing incredible work uh, for the country and so uh, it was a privilege to be here and and ho ho hopefully it can be a help to even one person thank you so much ali appreciate it yeah take care, take care Khalil. Hey, Cashflow Contractors, hope that you enjoyed that episode with Ali Azahad. I want to give a huge thank you to him for sharing so much about his life stories, uh, the lessons that he's learned and the revelations that he's had as a person through business. Uh, I hope it was valuable for you, as valuable as it was for me. There's many things that I need to go and think about myself. Uh, but also want to give a shout out to Hover, our sponsor for this episode, hover.to. If you're an exterior contractor, you absolutely have to check them out. They're an incredible product that's going to transform the way that you measure jobs, the way that you run your team, the way that you run your sales process, and the way that you interact with customers. Everything is just so done for you that it's crazy where technology is today. Check it out. Don't settle for other softwares because Hover is absolutely the market leader and it's, it's for a reason. So go use their product. Thank you to Hover. Thank you for listening. Go share this episode with your peers in the industry and check us out on social media. Appreciate it. Hey, Cashflow Contractors, we all hate when projects get off to the wrong start. The margin of error can be so costly, but thanks to Hover, the home improvement experience becomes more simple, efficient, and transparent. Accurate measurements, collaborative design tools, and dependable estimates are all ways Hover helps you serve your customers better and improve your operations to grow your business. For more information, visit hover.to or download the free Hover app today.